I just want to find uh, 11,780 votes, which is one more that we have, because we won the state. And there's nothing wrong with saying that, you know, uh, that you've recalculated. We all heard the tape of the phone call 11 months ago. President Trump telling Brad Raffensperger, Georgia's Secretary of State, he should overturn the election results and declare that he, not Joe Biden, won the Peach State in last year's election. It was a brazen attempt by Trump to pressure Raffensperger, at times ridiculing him, they're laughing at you behind your back, Trump told him, and other times warning him he could face criminal prosecution and it would get, quote, very dangerous for him if he continued to stand by the election results in Georgia. President Trump is using what he believes is the power of his position to threaten me if we don't do what he tells us to do, Raffensperger writes about the phone call in his new book called Integrity Counts, essentially accusing the president of criminal conduct. Raffensperger's stark conclusions could make him a crucial witness in the still ongoing investigation of Trump's conduct by Fulton County District Attorney Fannie Willis. But even while he stands as potentially the most menacing threat yet to Trump in a court of law, Raffensperger is hardly likely to be embraced by progressives. He was and remains a loyal conservative Republican, who in his book argues that liberal hero Stacey Abrams set the stage for Trump's conduct by refusing to concede she lost the 2018 gubernatorial election, and arguing that, instead of voter fraud, she was victimized by voter suppression. We'll talk to Raffensperger about his phone call with Trump and about his case against Stacey Abrams and the Democrats on this episode of Skullduggery. I do solemnly swear that I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States. And will, to the best of my ability, preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. So help me God. 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 I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. And I'm Victoria Bassetti, a fellow at the Brennan Center for Justice. So, you know, we all listened to that phone call at the time that the tape uh, and transcript came out, and then it kind of got overshadowed by a few days later, the events of January 6th. But going back to it and listening or reading what Raffensperger is saying, because he reproduces the whole transcript of the phone calls interspersed with his observations about what Trump was saying to him. And a lot of things leapt out at me. He talks about how Trump, and he quotes Trump saying that the people of Georgia are angry, the people of this country are angry, and there's nothing wrong with saying that you know that you've recalculated. Now think about that, recalculated. Basically, Trump is telling Raffensperger to fudge the results, to change the, to recalculate them in a way that's going to benefit him. That's sort of, you know, not so veiled code for, you know, doctoring the results. That's criminal conduct. Yeah. I had forgotten that he used that word recalculating, which I think is uh, significant. And I'm sure it's something that uh, Fannie Willis, uh, the Fulton County yeah. DA, is looking at. And then the other thing, which you know, maybe hasn't gotten as much attention as it, as it deserves, is he was also 
uh, strongly suggesting that Raffsenberger committed crimes himself by not reporting the fraud that was right. uh, t- was taking place. He said, you're basically, he said, you know, this this is criminal stuff and you're exposed here. You know, right. this is a That's big a risk. That's a criminal offense. This is and, a big risk for you. And then he says, it could be very dangerous for you. And Ravensburger in the book gives his observation, you know, basically, not basically, he says that he interpreted this as a threat. So you have Trump, telling him to commit criminal conduct by changing the results of the election and threatening him if he <laughs> does not. You know, yeah, uh, t- yeah, a typically coherent case that Trump is making. <laughs> right. I think we can realistically expect to see Brad Raffensperger in the grand jury uh, in Fulton County pretty soon testifying about all of this. And Fanny Willis kind of parsing every little word of this book as carefully as she can. One of the things that really interests me about Raffensperger's thing is, is that Raffensperger was not the only person Trump called. And Georgia was not the only state he tried to do this in. But Georgia seems but to be the But here we've got the tape. Here we've got the tape. <laughs> yeah. and, and it's kind of like, I just, you know, like, I wonder about all of the other calls he must have been making in Michigan and Arizona. Like, we know, for example, that literally at the moment that the governor of Arizona was signing the certificate appointing the electors to Biden in Arizona, that Trump called him. And it's because the governor of Arizona had a special ringtone on his cell phone for Trump. Right, right. So he, he's literally, you he, literally, the cameras are on him, and all of a sudden, Trump's ringtone goes off. So, so Trump was like, was calling and doing all of this. Well, yeah. Let, let's remember, he also called members of the board of of, of elections in in Michigan, Michigan, I believe. Yeah. And I think uh, didn't the. Uh, I don't know, the Speaker of the House or, or someone at, in the uh, Michigan um, state legislature actually came to the White House and met with Trump at the time. I mean, it's just nuts. And, you know, Trump's, even if Trump, you know, doesn't have the, like, no one has the authority to, like, change the outcome of the 2020 election anymore, he's still at it. Literally yesterday, a member of the Wisconsin legislature introduced a resolution and is trying to get a vote in the Wisconsin legislature right now rescinding and recalling the electors that they appointed in 2020. So they, they, it is still going to this very moment. And just to uh, anticipating we were going to be having this discussion, I checked in uh, the other day with a uh, former Georgia prosecutor who understands how things work in the state. And we were talking about the special grand jury that Fannie Willis is uh, expected to convene shortly. She hasn't done so yet, but it's reportedly the next step. And, you know, I just was talking to Georgia prosecutor sort of what the possible charges would be and how this could play out. And she pointed out to me that there is a crime uh, on the Georgia books that makes it a felony to corruptly influence a public official. And it's got a two-year mandatory minimum sentence if conviction. And if you add racketeering, which has been mentioned as a possible charge against Trump as well, when you rope in Rudy Giuliani and all the other people that were doing his bidding in Georgia, the mandatory minimums are 
five years in a Georgia penitentiary. So, look, we don't know. I don't want to get ahead of ourselves. You know, Trump. No, I agree. <laughs> I don't, we don't want to get ahead of ourselves, but I don't think it has sunk in with most Americans how much of a, of a threat this potentially is for Donald Trump. It may be the biggest legal threat that he's facing because on their face, the facts seem pretty clear. This prosecutor is both creative uh, and aggressive, and she's hired this uh, state RICO expert. People think of RICO as, you know, like busting mob, you know, mob families. It's, it's, uh, it's not really, it can be that, but it's much more. And this could get very, very interesting <laughs> right, very quickly. Right. So a- as we sit here, we don't know what Donald Trump's future is going to be. Maybe he'll spend the rest of his days down in Mar-a-Lago in Florida, or he could run for president again. And it is not wildly implausible that he could get the Republican nomination and possibly, you know, return to the White House once again, or he could end up in a Georgia state. Prison Although some of this is not mutually exclusive because this will play out over a long period of time and you could imagine a scenario where he is both on trial and running for president. <laughs> right. well. Then he could self-pardon maybe. You know. <laughs> yeah. Oh wait, no, he can't pardon himself for no, state crimes. No, he can't crimes. pardon himself. So, it's a state right, crime. Exactly. State crime. I'm sure he's going to be calling um, Kemp up a lot and asking for a, a gubernatorial pardon. Though. Now we should take note because um, as we were preparing for this podcast, uh, we learned about another attempt to influence the 2020 election with some pretty striking new details. The Justice Department brought an indictment against two Iranians for accessing confidential U.S. voter information uh, from a state election uh, website, sending threatening email messages to intimidate and interfere with voters, creating and disseminating a video containing disinformation about purported election infrastructure vulnerabilities, and gaining unauthorized access to a U.S. media company's computer network that if it had not been for the FBI's uh, efforts to mitigate, would have provided the conspirators another vehicle, I'm reading from the uh, Justice Department press release here, to disseminate false claims after the election. I mean, getting into state election websites, that was something we spent a lot of time looking for, the Russians trying to do in 2016. But here it appears that uh, these Iranian hackers who are not in custody, by the way, they're still in Iran, may have done uh, what the Russians were trying to do in 2016. And the the indictment says they tried in 11 states. They only... They They got in in one. In one. But in that one state, uh, they gained unauthorized access to voter information of 100,000 voters. And then they targeted those voters with uh, threatening emails posing as the Proud Boys and threatening them with physical harm if you don't vote, if, you, if you're if you a Democrat and you don't change your party affiliation to Republican, yeah. your registration to Republican, we're going to come after you. So what, what we don't know here, though, is what was the motive for this? Were these Iranians trying to 
intimidate voters from voting for Joe Biden and to vote for Donald Trump? Or was this so crude and so heavy handed that they were trying to embarrass the Trump campaign by you know, pretending to be the Proud Boys intimidating voters when their real goal is to help the Biden campaign. You or, just can't or tell. Or they from didn't this even indictment. care if it was Biden or Trump. What they mostly cared about was disrupting the system. They're sowing and kind discord. Of, and sowing, sowing discord and doubt. I mean, whatever. Yeah. We, we do know one thing about their motive it wasn't good. <laughs> right. Yeah, and, and and the other thing we don't know, because I couldn't find it in the indictment, uh, is that this was actually directed by the government of Iran. No, I mean, there's nothing in the indictment that uh, asserts that. You know, they're Iranian hackers. Um, you know, we can surmise that they may have had a relationship with the government, but we don't know that. You could imagine, by the way. You know, whenever you get these indictments involving foreign actors, there's always uh, or often kind of diplomatic sensitivities and the State Department will get involved. And I think, Mike, you probably covered, you know, cases where there have been a, you know, a fight between the State Department and the Justice Department. Who knows? Maybe the uh, negotiations with Iran over over the nuclear deal and are, are at some very delicate stage right now. And so there was a decision to kind of soft pedal the government's involvement. I mean, there's just a lot here that we don't know. But what we do know is certainly intriguing. It's certainly intriguing, although, you know, cautionary note, it's not clear how much more we'll learn since these two guys are safely in Iran. Yeah, they're not going uh, to be brought Beyond to the reach of U.S. Yeah, law exactly, enforcement. Yeah. So they won't be showing up in any uh, courtroom uh, anytime soon. Just to step back from this particular incident, I, I don't think we should lose sight of the fact that that this is probably this is a, a a kind of a recurring and ongoing, you know, kind of cyber war that we're involved with with you know Iran and the United States, where they uh, not only attack our election systems but are, are regularly trying to kind of probe the weaknesses in a variety of our uh, critical infrastructure. This is just the rare instance in which D- DOJ has gone public, and we're doing some of the same kinds of things in other countries um, as well, um, whether whether we're interfering in elections or not, I don't, I don't know, although we do have a rich history of having done that in the past. One other point uh, that worth mentioning, um, Isakoff and uh, Victoria, you know, the assistant attorney general for the Justice Department who is overseeing this case and who announced it was, before he went back into government, a regular on skullduggery. skullduggery. Uh, so he is now yeah. investigating um, Iranian skullduggery, and hopefully he'll come on our skullduggery again to talk about this case at some point. He's, he's one of many who have gone from skullduggery guest to the highest reaches of the U.S. government. The ultimate it's a, revolving it's door. It's a pathway. Skull, <laughs> being on yeah. skullduggery is uh, a pathway to power. It's the pipeline. Yeah. It's the skullduggery yeah, to power right. pipeline. All right. <laughs> well, let's get to um, our really interesting guest uh, who's got a lot to say about what happened in the 2020 post-election. Let's get to it. We now have with us uh, Brad Raffensperger, the Secretary of State of Georgia and the author of the new book, Integrity Counts. Mr. Secretary, welcome to Skullduggery. Good afternoon. 
a lot to talk about in your book, and obviously the uh, phone call that you got from President Trump back in January 2nd of this year really put you in the national spotlight, and you talk about that a lot in your book. But I want to start out with asking you, because Fannie Willis, the Fulton County District Attorney, has said she's investigating that phone call and other efforts by the president and his uh, aides to change the result in Georgia. Have you been contacted by Fannie Willis's office? Are you cooperating in that investigation? Our staff has sent documents over that where we're uh, part of a request for documents. And so we've uh, sent that and we told uh, the district attorney that we comply with her request. She's interviewed a few of our employees. I've not been interviewed, but that's where it is right now. So where she is exactly, you'd have to give her a call. And I know she's got a lot on her plate. But you do expect that you will be called. It's inevitable. And I got to say, I, I I was fascinated. In your book, you print the entire transcript of that phone call and your observations about what the president was asking of you, in particular to find those 11,780 votes, one more than he needs to flip the state from Biden to Trump. And At one point, he says to you that you could recalculate the votes. And you make clear in your observation that he's asking you to fudge the results, to do something that you knew was wrong. And basically, to fudge the results means doing something that would have been illegal for you to do, which basically means you're confirming your view of what the president said to you is pressuring you to do something that was criminal. Well, there was nothing to recalculate. I'm an engineer and I'm pretty good with numbers and so is my team. And we added up all the numbers. We checked out every single allegation that was made. And that's why I knew that there wasn't 11,780 votes to be found. Uh, We had looked at every single allegation that was made. And so in my book, Integrity Counts, I go through that point by point of every single allegation that was made. There weren't 10,000 dead people that voted. There was less than five. There weren't any underage voters. They said there were 66,000, zero. It was things like that. And so that really uh, just determined, you know, the, it's, it's really what people expressed their free will choice on who they wanted for all the different races. And we checked out every single allegation that was made and there was nothing to recalculate as I said, because our numbers were correct. But my point is, when the president says recalculate, he's asking you to do something that would have been criminal, correct? I'm going to follow the law and follow the Constitution, and that's what I did. And so I wasn't going to deviate from that. And so that's, I think it's pretty clear that uh, I did follow the law and I did follow the Constitution. And he also suggests to you that if you didn't do what he wanted, you would be committing some sort of criminal offense and would be subject to prosecution. You write in your book, you took that to be a threat. Well, obviously, he had was had an implied threat to both Ryan Germany and myself that if we did something wrong, but it gets back to, no, we didn't. I'm sorry that he was disappointed. I'm sorry that my side was disappointed. In fact, I wish he would have won. Would have made my life a whole lot easier. But 
those numbers are the no correct numbers. And there was never enough thought to overturn the results of the race. And so it was a hollow threat because we were standing on facts and he was standing on allegations that were not supported by the facts. I have to ask you, you said you wish he had won because it would have made your life a lot easier. But I have to ask you, in retrospect, do you really wish he had won? Well, you live the moment at the time. And at that time, I voted for President Trump twice. Right, right. So that's really where we are. But yeah. uh, my job was to make sure, make sure we had a fair and honest election. And so we did the work to make sure that that's what we can come back to the people and certify a race and say, here are what the results are. Would you ever vote for him again? Well, that's so far out in the future. And the only race I'm focused on right now is my race for 2022. Well, we're going to we, we want to get into that in a little bit, but I want to stay on the call for a little bit because I am interested in what your state of mind was as you were experiencing this call. Did you feel at the time that you were being pressured? And did you think at the time president might be committing a criminal act here in how he was talking to you? Or is that something that you thought about more in, in retrospect after the call happened? My concern was that we already had several lawsuits from the Trump organization, Trump campaign, uh, state party on behalf of the Trump campaign, that we had all these lo uh, lawsuits that were outstanding. And I assumed that he had a whole bunch of lawyers on his end. We don't know who all was on the call up in uh, Washington, D.C. There was several people that actually were from Atlanta. I didn't realize that at the time uh, when he said mentioned some person named Alex. I didn't realize that was Alex Kaufman from Fulton County. Well, I thought his whole office put his ring with uh, lawyers, writing down everything that we said. And anything I, that I would say would be used in a deposition to go forward with a judge. So I want to be very careful and very concise and precise in everything I said, mm -hmm. because I understood that it would be highly scrutinized by his team of lawyers. And I just have a, a couple of other quick follow-up questions, and then I know Victoria will want to jump in. But I'm curious, just almost as a human matter, when the call ended, and you were there with your deputy, Jordan Fuchs, and, and your no. uh, general, or not in the same room. I was just there so, with my wife, Krisha. Okay, so you all hung up. All right, well, even more interesting, um, you were there with your wife. What was the conversation with your wife after that call? What did you think? What did you say to her? How did she react? I don't remember exactly, but it was just like, well, we, that's kind of like, that was an hour and 10 minutes, and we survived it. Because the president really uh, did most of the talking, uh, making his points, uh, we responded. And I wanted to make sure that whatever I did in that phone call, that was respectful. And I think uh, Trish and I, before we had the call, we're just thinking about, you know, where my parents, you know, were born and raised and where her parents were born and raised. And I never thought, even as Secretary of State, I'd ever have a conversation with the President of the United States. And so I just wanted to make sure that what we did is that we were respectful and respected his positional authority as president of the United States of America. So I bet in addition to maybe never thinking you were going to speak to the president of the United States, you probably never thought that as secretary of state, you were going to need a security detail and that you were in addition, you know, going to be subject to a lot of threats, possibly to your personal safety. You, you tell a, a story in the book about some suspicious cars parked near your house you're not the only election official who's been getting threats to his personal safety since the 2020 election kind of seemed to have unleashed a tide of, you know, kind of violent thoughts and actions against election officials. I guess my, my question really where I'm going with this is, is there any kind of putting this violence genie back in the bottle? Do you see a way of 
pulling back from the brink of a, a kind of a devastating downward cycle of lack of faith in the election system. I think that really gets to the uh, point of my book when I tell you I have the solution. I have the solution for everything. But before we talk about policy, <laughs> maybe you should be other... running for president then <laughs> instead of secretary of state. Well, have you, how's Middle solution, East peace? Have you got that guy? Solution, if you get that sorted. The solution, the solution is character. It's integrity. It's honesty. It's common decency and it's kindness. And in fact, Ronald Reagan has a quote about being kind. So you can be conservative and still be kind. You don't have to be meaner than a snake. And in fact, the kinder you are, the more you're going to attract people to your cause. And so that's really uh, the solution. I think that is then an individual decision that each of us, as we look in that mirror every morning, that have we been honest? Have we walked that line of integrity? Have we done the good and noble things in life? And so that's really what I'm called to do is do the good and noble in life. Uh, it's a high honor to represent the people, to be their spokesperson. They're the chief election official, their secretary of state in Georgia. And so my job is to make sure we have fair and honest elections for everyone. And my job is really, when I talk to people, to talk respectfully at all times in this forum. So the speech that we may have on a construction job site, because I'm from the construction business, that doesn't belong in politics. I think that everyone in Congress really is called, they're in the halls of Congress. And so we really need to each on both sides is be a better person and, and then and really build relationships with the other side. Keep your conservative, keep your liberal values. I hope you keep your conservative values because I'm a conservative, but you have to have conversations with people. So I think it really gets down to those internal values, your internal guidepost. What are, what's really your true north? I have to say, uh, kindness and talking respectfully of other people uh, is not exactly the way people would describe the guy you voted for in the last election. One thing I uh, totally forgotten or missed is a few weeks before that phone call, he called you the enemy of the people. Mm -hmm. Now, we in the press were used to being called enemy of the people, but I didn't know he was aiming that at you. What was that like? I love our country. I love the American people. I love Georgians. And I, my wife's a photographer now, so we get to travel. So we've been to Maine, we've been to Glacier, we've been to the Oregon coast, we've been to New Mexico, we go to the Great Smokies. We see all this entire country. We got good farmland all over. We can, you know, this is just an incredible country. And we, can, we, and we have incredible people. And no matter where these people are, when you go to these, you know, little diners that have been around for 50 to 75 years, those are good people in there. I see. I think that's really what we've lost sight of. I think Washington D.C. has really lost sight of the good goodness of the American person, and so we need to really elevate ourselves. We need to just need to be as good as the person that we meet in the diner, because those are good folks. And so that's how I look at it. And so I love our country. My dad, you know, he's a World War II veteran, served in the Navy. He just he just loved our country. Brought us to be brought us up to be patriots in the best sense of the word. So I loved our founders. Loved Abraham Lincoln, Grant. You know, think about what we have, what a heritage. And so I think we need to lean back into that and really understand it. We weren't perfect, obviously, 200 some odd years ago, but it was a great ideal. And each year we try to build on that ideal to make our country a more perfect union. And that's a good thing. I think the question was, what was it like? What went through your mind when you heard Donald Trump call you an enemy of the people? For a person of such high position, he should be more mindful of what he says because people listen to everything he does say. It doesn't, no matter who the president is, it's a very powerful position. 
And that's why when I started this call off, I said, I respect people's positional authority. And I think we really need to do that up and down the line. And when you hold that positional authority, be very mindful of the authority and the power of that position. In the post-election, actually even before the election, we at, at Yahoo News, my colleague uh, John Ward, spent a lot of time interviewing secretaries of state around the country, election administrators, uh, Republicans uh, by and large, because of all of the efforts that D Donald Trump and his allies were making already to undermine faith in mail-in ballots and, and other aspects of, of, of voting. And to a person, they said that they were not worried about the election, they were not concerned that there would be fraud, that there, ha there has not been wide-scale election fraud uh, in, this, in this country because of the systems that we have. And, you know, so people like you and other secretaries of state were a kind of a bulwark for elections and for protecting voting and, and our democracy in a real sense. Now, there are a lot of secretaries of state who are being challenged, you among them, by candidates who have been endorsed by Donald Trump. And there is an effort to put people in, in those positions who may not stand up for the same principles that you did. Is that a concern of yours? Do you think that this could lead to an erosion of fair and, and transparent uh, elections in this country? I think that this past election cycle has shown how important the position of Secretary of State is. I think it's also shown how important it is to have people of high moral character in this office that will do the right thing no matter what the political cost could be for them. And so you have to understand that, and that's why I'm running again, make sure we have continuity in the office, and then make sure that uh, you'll have a Secretary of State that will stand for the truth and will take the shots and bear the political cost to himself personally because you're going to do the right thing to make sure we do have fair and honest elections. I don't know how I could add any more to that. I think that I work with my other secretaries of state were on both sides of the aisle, but they're striving to make sure we have fair and honest elections. We also are making sure that we shore up, restore voter confidence where we can, make sure that we speak the truth in, in the issues and dispel rumors, but also make sure that we have strong cybersecurity defenses, things like that, so the people can understand that our elections aren't hacked by uh, Chinese people or and our, our results aren't sent over to be tabulated over in Italy. They're tabulated at the local precinct level, which is then sent up to the county level, which then sends it to the state. Yeah. Our county run our elections. The candidate who is running against you in the Republican primary, Jody Heiss, who is currently a member of Congress from, from Georgia and has been endorsed by uh, President Trump, he voted against the certification of the election. Had he been in your position instead of you, what do you think he would have done? I think he's already shown what his true character is. In fact, he certified his race with the same machines, same vote tabulations. And he said that was a good election for himself. And yet for the president's race, he said somehow that was tainted. That's a double-minded double person. And as a pastor, he really should know better. So I want to go back to the kind of the question of whether or not there is um, kind of extensive fraud or cause for concern uh, about the way our elections are administered. I think you say in the book that we, we've got kind of one of the best that, that, that elections in America have never been more secure or better run. And there's a consensus that, you know, there wasn't widespread fraud in Georgia in in 2020, yet there is an effort to make it. I would say probably harder for people to get absentee ballots in Georgia, not just Georgia, but, you know, in, in many other states. Do you think that that's justified by the evidence? Actually, in Georgia, what we did is we 
uh, incorporated for the very first time photo ID with driver's license. So now when you vote in person, either early or obviously on election day, we've always had photo ID for over 10 years. Now we've incorporated driver's license number and birthday, day, month, year. That's similar to what they've had in Minnesota now for 10 years. And Minnesotans are very pleased with that. And also Texas has copied Georgia on that. I think it's a very good objective measure, which I think will help shore up confidence. And that's a good thing. But aside from that, we actually increased the number of days of early voting. Uh, we made sure that if you wanted to vote absentee, you got your request in 11 days before election day so that the county could process your application and then they could send you the ballot and then you could send it back in. Before, you could actually request it that Friday before, and there's no way you'd ever would have had the time to do that. So we've actually improved, I think, the, the system of the election process so we, you know that you'll get your absentee ballot. So we've done a lot of things like that. We're making sure the lines are shorter than one hour. And I know the Brennan Center is one of the organizations that hates long lines. Well, we hate them too. Voters hate them. And so now we have in there accountability measure to keep lines shorter than one hour. Do you think that absentee ballots in 2020 were so substantially abused that it justified making it harder to get them in 2021 or 2022? I don't think in Georgia we've changed that it makes it more difficult. I do think that um, the challenge that you have with absentee voting is you want to make sure the person requesting the ballot truly is who they are. And people say that signature match is subjective. I understand that. So we, we threw in that we added incorporated in the driver's license with photo ID. That's a very objective measure. And I think that'll really help shore that up. Over 98% of all Georgians have a, a driver's license that are registered. So we think that that is not an undue burden, but we've also said you can use 14 or 15 other forms of identification and the state will provide a free ID for anyone that wants one. So that Georgia law, which you are praising and extolling here, obviously was a source of enormous controversy when it passed. And you had the president of the United States, the current president, comparing it to Jim Crow, calling it Jim Crow 2.0. You had major corporations in this country boycotting Georgia, the all-star game. We didn't hear too much about that during the World Series, but, you know, give us your reaction to the blowback you got on that law, and particularly from corporations that usually try to avoid staying out of partisan politics. Well, I do know that Stacey Abrams reserved Jim Crow 2.0, the website for that, two or three weeks before the bill was even passed. And there were probably 50 or more bills that were introduced by the General Assembly. Many of those uh, never even saw, got heard in a committee hearing. They were just filed. And many members said they were following that just to placate the people back home. When the General Assembly went through the process, they kept no excuse absentee voting, actually increased the number of days of early voting from 16 up to 17. So now we have three weeks, Monday to Friday, plus two Saturdays, mandatory for all 159 counties. And any county that wants to have Sunday voting can have two Sundays of voting, 19 days. So that's more than New York, New Jersey, Delaware. And so we actually lead the nation on that. But what happened is when the bill got passed, people were saying it did things that it didn't do. And it just built a, it became a, had a life of its own. Much like the election disinformation that President Trump engaged in, there was an awful lot about SB 202. There's one thing I said I didn't support, and that was removing me as the chairman of the state election board uh, because I was an elected official and now they have an appointed position. But many other uh, aspects are solid legislation. 
What about the water bottles? I mean, that one got a lot of attention. Oh, it did. And people said, like, you know, what's wrong with allowing people well, to give somebody a bottle of water while they're waiting on a long line on Election right. Day? Well, because what the issue was, first of all, in November of 2020, the lines were less than an hour on Election Day. I screenshot it. And so the longest line we had on our leaderboard was 50 minutes. The average wait time was three minutes. So we had really worked with the counties to defeat long lines. But what was happening on this, in the runoff race is that campaigns had their T-shirts on. And you know what campaign they were with. Sometimes it actually even had the person who was actually running in the race. Sometimes you could just tell which side of the party it was on. Coming within that 150-foot zone we've had for 50 years now of no politicking, no electioneering, and they were offering water. But it was really an opportunity to do some more electioneering within that 150 foot zone. Do you really think offering a water bottle is going to change somebody's vote? Well, they were coming within that zone with their banners of who they're representing to try and, you know, help get that last minute, you know, push for that. So now it's now you can do what you want outside the 150 foot zone. We now have accountability that all lines now have to be less than one hour. So people should be able to handle that, not to have a bottle of water for 30, 45 minutes. But if they really get thirsty, they can step out of the line, go out 151 feet and grab themselves a bottle of water. And maybe lose their place in line. I just wanted to follow up on uh, the the aspect of the law that you that you oppose, which you just referred to, which is uh, removing the secretary of state as the chairman of the board. Are you still on the board? Are you a voting member of the board? No, non, I'm a non-voting ex officio. And I really believe that I've never supported, even when I was in the General Assembly, that having unelected boards, commissions, and authority. In fact, I had a bill to that effect, but never having uh, so much sway and so much power right. and not being held directly accountable to the voters. As Secretary of State, you are directly accountable. Now, if you don't like a ruling, who do you talk to? We have 180 state reps. We have 56 state senators. Who do you call to say, hey, I didn't like what you did? And so everyone's going to be doing one of these things, pointing. It'll be like Washington, D.C. and microcosm here in Atlanta. But doesn't this also take Georgia pretty far down a path of, of politicizing election administration in, 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 in Georgia? Because if the state legislature controls that board and can can, as I understand it, can then remove county election administrators uh, because I think the standard is uh, nonfeasance, malfeasance, or gross negligence. But of course, as we've seen, that's in the eye of the beholder. Isn't that dangerous? Well, there's actually a review panel, and Fulton County right now has a review panel that's reviewing that. It consists of a Republican uh, election board member and a Democrat election board member. One's Metro Atlanta board member, and the other one is a rural board member and our general counsel. Those three people are digging, doing a deep dive on Fulton County, looking at their processes, meeting with the board, meeting with the election director. You know, what is your process? What is your plan for improvement? Also, where are you right now? And so they're gonna do a deep dive, but everyone has due process rights. The General Assembly was appropriate and I think very correct. They made sure that it's a thoughtful, thorough process that you're gonna not just make decisions at the whims of the General Assembly or the whims of any party. But I do think that having an unelected chair, at some point, I'm sure that, you know, I don't know what year it'll be. Maybe it'll be 20 years down the road. Maybe it'll be 40. But the people of Georgia will regret that the General Assembly made that decision. 
So, you know, one of the things that I, I kind of get a hint of in this in this conversation and that I think certainly comes through in the book is that you don't like Stacey Abrams and her group, that you think it is a uh, uh, that you just don't believe that they bring good lawsuits or support good causes. And I'm just sort of curious if my assessment is right, if, if you don't trust her organization. Oh, I have no personal animosity towards anyone. But I do think when I took office and immediately I was facing nine lawsuits from Fair Fight, New Georgia Project, Fair Count, and all this allied Stacey Abrams groups, that their whole gist of all that was based on was voter suppression. It was a stolen election claim. She lost by 55,000 votes and still this day has not conceded. People want to argue with that point with me, but she was in Virginia four weeks ago and she said, just because you win doesn't mean you won. And so she still really hasn't conceded that point. And so she had a lawsuit about the old DRE machines, the electronic machines. They then got a, a favorable ruling from a judge to morph that over to our new ballot marking devices. The ballot marking devices is just a form of making sure you mark your ballot. You can either do it hand-marked or with machine. The General Assembly and myself and our governor and former Secretary of State Kathy Cox, who happened, all preferred a ballot marking device. The reason we did, we didn't want to get into what, what did the voter really, what was their intent when they circled it or they didn't follow directions like they do in absentee balloting. So we took out that whole concept so we knew exactly who they wanted, you know, when they actually print out a ballot and you can look at your choices. And so that's been morphed on and that's cost the taxpayers millions and millions of dollars. Flip that forward to 2020. Now we're talking about voter fraud. It's both not supported by facts. It's never been easier to vote. We have security and, and people just need to understand when you lose, you are losing honestly. And if you don't like your loss, I think you'd be well served to lose gracefully. And if you want to run again, by all means, that's your right as an American citizen. I do think you, you do concede that there has been a, a history of voter suppression in the South and that, that the African-American community is, is a little sensitive to these sort of issues, right? Oh, I, and I talk about that in my book. I understand that when I became Secretary of State of Georgia, I recognize the history of the South. I recognize that the Voting Rights Act, you know, Civil Rights Act, that's 1964, 1965, these laws were passed. Now, we've come a long way from, from that, but I'm very mindful of that, and I am very mindful that whatever I say in certain segments of our society, they're looking at everything I say. They want to make sure that somehow I, you know, I, as a Secretary of State, is not going to try and game the system. And so that's why I want everyone to understand, I want to make sure we have guardrails and we have accessibility, and the appropriate of both of those, guardrails and accessibility, and make sure we have honest and fair elections. And I, I've shown that I will make those hard decisions and I will take the political cost to make sure we do. And I think that's what you need in the Secretary of State, that will have fair and honest elections. So let me ask you about uh, some uh, recent news uh, down in your state, which indicates that there are still quite a few of your fellow Republicans that don't accept what happened in 2020, despite everything you've said. And one of them is former Senator David Perdue, who is apparently considering a primary challenge to Governor Kemp and attacking him for caving in to those who, caving in to you and people who are accepting what you're saying by refusing 
Trump's demands to overturn the election. Basically, Purdue is channeling uh, Trump's critique here. What's your reaction to hearing your former senator basically uh, taking up the former president's cause? I don't know uh, what Senator Purdue's uh, specific comment is, but in some respects, I think he almost was alluding to the signature settlement, the signature match settlement that we had. That has been so twisted around and so misconstrued. So here are the facts. We actually strengthened signature match. When we were sued by the Democrat party of Mark Elias, we actually prevailed. What we prevailed on is we kept signature match during the application phase of the absentee ballot. And we then kept signature match at the ballot phase. They wanted to get rid of both of those. And we kept that. And then we also got from them in part of that uh, settlement agreement that they would not sue us again during the 2020 cycle about signature match. And so those were all three victories for the people of Georgia. Somehow, some people that wanted to then scapegoat afterwards and blame shifts said that we somehow did something else. They called it a consent agreement. They said, I signed it, which I don't have the authority to do that. It was signed by the attorney general and Vincent Russo, who happens to also represent the state Republican party. But it was a good agreement because we kept signature match. And we kept it for the application phase, and we kept it when the ballots came back in. Well, it does occur to me that you could have uh, quite an election uh, next year in Georgia as if you didn't have enough drama last time. Either, you know, Purdue may be running against Kemp, uh, and the winner may well be facing another run by Stacey Abrams, um, which should give you plenty to uh, uh, be talking about. As we wrap up, I just want to come back to where we started. And my final question, because I was asking you about that Trump phone call and the investigation investigation by the Fulton County DA, it strikes me, just based on what you've written in your book, in which you talk about the president get, trying to get you to fudge the numbers and threatening you, that you could end up being the most critical witness in a trial against Donald Trump. Are you prepared to be that witness? Well, of that's conjecture. We'll see where she actually takes it. I know she's got a lot on her plate. And I know that there's an investigation on the January 6th committee up in Washington, D.C. But uh, we told when grand juries are convened, you are required uh, to comply with their request. And I said I would comply with their request. But that's out in the future. But I told and I think everyone understands that I fought hard for an honest and fair election. And I try and help my side now understand three data points. But first of all, number one is 28,000 people in Georgia skipped the presidential ballot. They didn't vote for anyone, and yet they voted down ballot. And then David Perdue actually got 20,000 more votes in Metro Atlanta and Athens than President Trump. And the Republican congressional areas, the Republican congressman got 33,000 more votes than President Trump. Those three data points kind of tell you the whole story, exactly what did happen. And all the other stuff was all made up stuff, all falsehoods. And we wonder, put out that book and integrity counts to let people know what the facts were. Well, I hope people read it, then they'll have the facts. And my part of the facts is my 10 page letter to Congress. It's been up there since January 6th. And no one, no one today has ever refuted any single point that I made in my letter. So I think my, record, my, my letter was uh, accurate. And so I stand on that record also. My first uh, elected office I held was city council and part of 
you know, being a new council member, one of the things they said is, as a council member, you never get involved in policing. That's why we have a city manager. And if you have any questions, you get with the city manager. Do not get involved in policing. And so that's something that I don't do. In fact, when we did the Cobb County Signature Audit, I welcomed the GBI agents. I welcomed our investigators that were there. And as soon as they got ready to open up and do their work, I stepped out and walked out because I did not want to be involved and have the appearance I was involved in an investigative process. So I understood what the appropriate boundaries are. Uh, perhaps that was because of the good training I got as part of my you know, new council member training about 10 years ago. Legislator boot camp. Yeah. <laughs> okay. And thank you for joining us. And everyone ought to read the book. By all means, I hope they do.